Russia's invasion of Ukraine has riveted world attention, and many around the world have voiced support for Ukraine, including the United States. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're discussing the philosophic meaning of the war, global reactions to it, and the war's wider implications for America and freedom. I'm Aaron Smith, a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute, and I'm joined today by my colleagues Ankar Gatte and Ilan Jerno, senior fellows at ARI. Welcome. Hi. Ankar, how would you describe America's foreign policy more generally and then more specifically with respect to Ukraine? We have a foreign policy? <laughs> I know there's an um, assumption built into that question. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and but that actually is my view, is we do not have a foreign policy. A, foreign, a policy means a principled view of both the nature of the world and the countries in it, of what our interests are, and then of how to pursue those interests long-term, how to preserve them, who are allies, who are enemies, how to act in regard to them. That, that's what a policy would be, and I think we have zero. We have no policy. And basically, when thinking about Ukraine, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a kind of perspective that it's the end of history, it's the end of ideology, we've won. And you could take, like the most charitable reading would be, we don't need a policy anymore. Um, I don't think we had one pre the fall of the Soviet Union, but we don't need one anymore because it's the end of ideological conflict. It's the end of worrying long-term about adversaries and enemies. And you could see that in the run-up to 9-11, that in the Middle East, part of what happened there was the cachet of communism, socialism waned, and it waned in part because of the bankruptcy and emptiness of the Soviet bloc. But our, 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 the, the officials charged with thinking about America's foreign um, actions and policy, we should be thinking long-term about what to do, ha had a perspective of uh, its blindness, I in the end think it's willful blindness, about that while well, something is rising in the Middle East, and the Iranian revolution tells you something very fundamental about what is rising. You're getting the rise of Islam and of a totalitarian um, fundamentalist Islam that's replacing the, what communism and socialism uh, were more, the, the place they had in the Middle East. And our policymakers, including someone like Reagan, could not see that, appeased it, the Middle East, uh, for decades, and we got to the point of 9-11. And I think something similar has happened in regard to thinking about the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc, that it was the collapse of the Soviet Union without thinking, well, what is going to replace it and why? And that th there's a reason ideologies are needed, that they provide a framework and a coherence to a nation. And what you've seen with the collapse of communism, I think you've seen it both in Russia and in a different way in China, is that collapse, but you have a rise of nationalism. 
And uh, a for, if we had a foreign policy, it would be framed by recognizing that that's what is happening in the world. And we have to face that fact and then think, how do we pursue our interests? Who are allies? Who are enemies in the face of a changing terrain? That the, it's a collapse of the, the kind of idealistic fervor that communism and socialism had, but it's being replaced by things that are um, still evil, dangerous, and require careful thought and long-term planning. And I think essentially there's been zero in regard to American uh, foreign policy, more broadly the West. Um, I'll let Alon chime in here as well, because I know, I mean, he's been working on these issues for a long time. Um, and, and studying America's foreign policy or lack thereof. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it, you put it well to say that there isn't one. I, I, it's important to get at what happens when you don't have a foreign policy, because there, there's a need to act. That's always the case. And what happens when you don't have a principled approach, I think what ends up filling the void is a, a mishmash of goals, uh, different levels of, of abstraction. Some of them are legitimate, some of them are not. And then, but no coherence to, nothing that you could say is a long range vision. And I think the worst aspect of what happens in that kind of void is no sense of moral judgment, no, no idea that that's important. And I think that it's, it's, it happens generally, but in particular in international relations, it's a common thing that people fall back on. They don't want to think about moral judgment. And we were talking about this before today's conversation and another conversation we had on the podcast. That I think the, the way to characterize what is taking the place or passing as foreign policy is, is an amoral approach. Like we're not going to look at this. We're not going to ask questions about right and wrong and the consequence is that there isn't any way to say what direction to take and, and who's, so the basic question you put earlier is who's an ally, who's an enemy? And then obviously there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of space in between those two that are, you need to think about and it's not trivial how to, to think that through. But you can't do that. You can't really sort those out if you don't have a principle, moral perspective, a principle perspective overall. And it would be useful to bring this into the context of Ukraine one of the tragedies so far, in addition, obviously the, the main thing that everyone knows about is that people who are dying needlessly because of Russia's invasion. Part of the unseen tragedy, I think, that hasn't been given enough attention or not, not really recognized, is that there, this is a dereliction of responsibility to think about what is Putin? Why is he doing these things? what to expect from someone who is in power in Russia, who's created for himself a position for life, essentially, who is an authoritarian, who's cracked, to say he's cracked down on, on freedom in Russia is an understatement. It's not like Russia was this uh, ideal society, but it, was, it became worse and worse under Putin's regime. When you have that going on, it is beyond negligence to look away from that and say, well, we can just figure out a way to accommodate ourselves to Putin. We can have, so on, we should talk about some of the different administrations and how they've approached Putin in the US and also how the Europeans have. But just as a, as a 
as a headline level point, you can't imagine that there's an authoritarian leader, the head of Russia, and that you won't get this kind of risk and that you and not to prepare for it, not to think about it just beyond tomorrow, beyond the next shipment of, of oil or, or the next supply of gas, uh, of gas and whatever trade you're doing with him. All those things have to be conditioned by the fact that this is an evil leader running a regime that is destructive of freedom. What do you think is going to happen beyond its borders? Do you think that's going to be that's going to stay where it is? Those kinds of things, it, you can't really think about them seriously if your whole perspective is we don't have a policy. We don't we don't want to think about those kinds of moral questions. And I think this is where you end up. You, you end up in a position where Putin feels empowered to act. It's not the only reason, but this is definitely a major factor. So I think there is a, a, a negligence here, more than negligence. Uh, and it's it, to me, the, the fundamental element of that is we don't think about questions of right and wrong. We don't want to. When it comes when it comes to thinking about <clears throat> foreign policy from the perspective of right and wrong, from the perspective of morality, um, can you tell us a little bit more about what that would look like when you deal with? I mean, you you indicated some of them uh, is that you know when you realize you're dealing with someone of the nature or character of Putin, what should be our response to regimes like that? Because I mean, in part we we're seeing uh, a lot of sanctions being uh, proposed and accepted both by the U.S. and other countries. And uh, part of the reluctance that some countries are having to engaging in those sanctions is, well, it's going to hurt us economically, not just them. Uh, and so there's an issue of like the relate the, the extent to which uh, we should be integrating economically and in dealing with regimes of the nature of someone like something like Russia, um, because then the more and more connections you get there, uh, the more and more you become more intertwined and it becomes, more, I think, more dangerous. Um, so I mean, you were, as we're talking about morality in the context of foreign policy, but I think at the same point, I think it relates to the issue of doing business. Definitely. I'll just uh, take one piece of that and we, we can hand it back to you, Ankar, if you want to add to it. So I'm really uh, surprised at the reaction of European countries that have pivoted so quickly to impose sanctions that I think a week ago they would have, I don't think anyone would have thought they were realistic. So th th there's, that's a good step in the right direction. And it, I don't think it's an overstatement to say for a lot of European leaders and diplomats, this is a kind of 9-11 moment, not in the sense of the, the loss of life. I don't think it's at that level, but it, uh, it's a sobering moment that no, Putin has put the troops on the borders because he means to invade and in here he has invaded and this is something we can't really turn away from. And once he's done with Ukraine, whatever his ambitions are, then there might be more to come. There's no question that that's on, on, on their mind. So I, I think it's a, it's a welcome sign that all of these sanctions and penalties are being imposed. I don't think they're nearly strong enough. And I think the, 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 the deeper point here, or the, the point that needs to be stressed, is that this is, in some ways, this is really late. So you, you're asking about when to do business with Russia, what to think of Russia and Putin in particular, and sort of the, how did that, how should that be colored by a moral perspective? All of these questions should have come up a long time ago. As Putin is cementing himself into power and as his country is heading more and more and faster towards authoritarianism, you, you, 
you need to take that seriously. You need to have a, a, one way to think of this is there has to be a night and day difference in your thinking about policy in other countries between free societies and societies that are not even trying to establish and protect freedom. And I think that's where Putin is on that side. I don't think there's any attempt to protect freedom. It's just how can we do, how can we have enough of a veneer of respectability and a veneer or a, a, a pantomime of elections representative government enough so that we're respectable in the eyes of enough of our victims to, to move things along. And I think that's where our focus should have been for the last two decades as Putin has risen and cemented himself into power. And I think there are important questions for businesses and, and the larger they are, the more this has to matter for them. It, it's not an argument to say, well, there's all this opportunity in Russia, let's go after it. When you don't know if whatever you're investing will ever, you might ever, whether they'll be protected. I mean, I know people who've gone into Russia to do business it is not a pretty scene. <laughs> there isn't a rule of law. And as soon as you get the whiff of that, that has to affect your view. Like, is this really a good investment? Like, why do we think this is ever going to pay off? And as soon as you get into that web, you have to ask yourself, well, I'm also in helping a regime that is at war with its own people. Do I really want to be trading with them? Uh, and I think that those are questions for, for private organizations and businesses to be doing. But that, that all presupposes, and I think this is an important point to go back to the issue of, we don't have a policy. Very few of the European countries have a policy. In the absence of that, that really hampers the ability of businesses to make rational decisions. Because if, if the UK government and the US government and France are all treating Russia as a credible, civilized country, then it is an invitation for people to go and do business there and trade and, and not, not put as much weight on the risks because, well, we have diplomatic relations and we, we think they belong at the UN. We think they belong in various summits and so forth. Uh, and I think that's, that has really made things worse. So there's a kind of short range perspective among some of the decisions that various businesses are doing. And I think they should pull out. There really isn't <laughs> benefits to them that way. And then I think it's all colored by the absence of a policy that takes seriously. No, if you go to Russia, you might never come out. You might, your business might get swallowed up by all kinds of uh, uh, corruption and you don't know what's going to happen to your investment. So you need to know that. Uh, and that's part of what a foreign policy would help people know. Like, no, this is not a good thing and we're not going to support, we're going to bail you out. I think there's a government position to take. Um, so there's a lot to unpack there, but I think that's the, those are some of the important aspects. And let me hand it back to you, uh, Ankar or Aaron. Well, let's bring in Ukraine here too, and our, our the American slash the West treatment of it. Is it a country that we view as having um, a strategic importance? It's important to our interests. It, um, we want to bring it into NATO. It's important to defend. I don't know what the answer, looking from the actions of our governments, I don't know what the answer to that is. They don't know what the answer to that is. This is part of what it means that we don't have a policy. And to say that it's amoral, what morality does for you, it, it, it defines your basic goals, your basic values, and your basic virtues of what you're going to do, what actions you're gonna undertake in the pursuit of your goals and your ideals. 
If you don't have anything like that, you have no idea how to operate, what's good for you, what's bad, what's crossing the line, what isn't. And from that perspective, you could say the, the West actions are unintelligible. From the Ukraine's perspective, I could understand that they think we've sold them out. Um, so after the fall of the Soviet Union, the there were many nuclear weapons in uh, this kind of satellite uh, states of, of, of Russia. Principally, I mean, one of the principal ones was Ukraine. In, in the mid-90s, 94, we signed an agreement where they're going to denuclearize. So they're not going to have nuclear weapons. And the agreement says, and so it's an agreement with that the, the participants are, or the parties are, the United States, the Russian Federation, the UK, and Ukraine. And it's that the, these countries are going to respect the independence and sovereignty and the existing borders of Ukraine. That's a quote from the agreement. And that they're not going to use force. So again, quoting, they reaffirm their obligation to refrain from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of Ukraine, and that none of their weapons will ever be used against Ukraine, except in self-defense or otherwise in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations. So this is in, in Ukraine denuclearizing, this is what the agreement was. And then if you ask, if you, if you fast forward to Russia taking the Crimea, like what the hell happened to this agreement? Or if you take um, the, the so, so if, if you fast forward into the 21st century, but before Crimea, NATO announces that Georgia and Ukraine are going to become members of NATO. So what does that mean? Does that mean we view them as they have strategic interests and if Russia meddles, let alone attacks them, that that will be a huge issue for us? Six months after NATO announced this, Russia attacked Georgia. We didn't do anything. And it's the same in regard to Ukraine. It's, it's like our position is, well, if you were a member, then we would defend you because NATO is attack on one country's attack on all, but you're not yet a member. So we're not gonna defend you, but we're gonna say you're going to become a member so that Russia is gonna think you're threatening. And yeah, well, what is Russia gonna do? Are they gonna attack Ukraine? If, if they think well, we need to attack. And I mean, Putin's a thug and a killer. So it, it, it doesn't take much for him to think, yeah, we're gonna attack. Is he gonna attack before Ukraine becomes a member of NATO or after Ukraine becomes it? And is he going to attack after we announce? Well, they're going to become members. And so from the perspective of Ukraine, I can understand that they could think that, I mean, and, and they legitimately think we've sold them out. But from our perspective, it's what are we even trying to do? Is Georgia or Ukraine of strategic interest to us? And I think that question from existing policymakers, and that's Republican, Democrat, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, they have zero idea. They cannot answer the question, is it of strategic importance or not? And you can take that point and, and apply it more concretely to NATO. So NATO is a um, one for all, all for one deal. You know, so the, you could ask, 
Is it really true that as America, as a member of NATO, needs all these other countries to be, join the alliance in order to protect us? Are we in a position where this is to our advantage? Should we be part of this organization? Should this organization exist, having witnessed the, the end of the Soviet regime, which was the principal purpose for this alliance, that it was to prevent the Soviet Union from achieving its global ambition of, of conquering the rest of the whole planet? So in the absence of any clarity on that, NATO keeps going. There isn't any understanding of why the United States is still in NATO. I can imagine European countries wanting to be, have an alliance like this. And then to, it goes, and then to integrate your question, what, where does this Ukraine fit into this picture? And where does Georgia fit into this picture? And so, so many other former Soviet republics that are now uh, trying to remain independent, why should they become part of NATO? Do we have an answer for that? I don't think there's any answer except, well, NATO is here. How can we not let them in? We don't want Putin. And uh, we don't want, we, we, there's kind of an understanding that Russia is a threat, but not an acknowledgement of it. And so NATO's purpose has kind of shifted from, well, it's against the Soviet Union. But now, what is it exactly allied against or allied in favor of? Uh, so we, we get into this position where uh, your point is well taken that we, we've, in, in a certain way, put Ukraine in a worse position by saying it'll become at some point a, a member. So that creates an opening for Putin to do something before that happens. But then suppose it is a member. Are we, should we really be going to war to protect Ukraine? Is, I mean, and I'm in favor of Ukraine becoming, staying independent from Putin, but there's no question of that. But does that mean America should invest resources and lives to protect this member of NATO if it becomes one. And the same for, for some of the more recent members uh, who are former Soviet satellites. So to me, those aren't answerable questions because there isn't a, a principled framework that defines what our goals and values are with respect to foreign policy or even to evaluating countries. So where do you see this going? <clears throat> I mean, when I, Look at uh, look at what's going on in the news. Look at the progress, or in some senses, lack of progress uh, of Russia's invasion. Um, how do you see this ending? What are some alternatives? Because it's it's to in a certain respect, it doesn't seem how this is going to end well for Putin. On the other hand, um, how does it end well for Ukraine? And if we don't have a if we don't have any sort of forward looking principled policy as to how we approach uh ukraine uh it seems like we, we would keep on the kind of a reactive posture and i mean it seems like that's what europe's uh posture is as well i mean it seems like a good development that people are coming together in europe uh in support of ukraine i think that's good they usually don't come together in that sort of way why do you think they're coming together and what do you think the outcome of this might be i mean given what we know about russia given what we know about our foreign policy damaged as it is I mean, I don't know in specifics what the outcome will be. Unfortunately, I think it's 99.9% the outcome will be bad. It's like, which version of bad will it be? I think Putin miscalculated. So my view of what sort of, that we have no foreign policy, that I have a very low opinion of Europe in this regard of, of, them thinking strategically about their interest and a commitment to 
protect their interest once they can figure out what it is. So my view is if Putin was more patient, he would have been able to get what he wanted in Ukraine. That it, like he seizes the Crimea, annexes it, and it's there's a few sanctions and so on, which then it's not a big deal. The sends troops into Eastern Ukraine, and there's some pushback about it, not much. Just before the invasion, declares the two regions independent. The, uh, they're recognizing them, and if it was a number of steps like that, I think Russia could have got basically the control they want in Ukraine, and there would have been no pushback here with an invasion. And it's particular when you have no policy, no conceptual understanding of what your goals are. What, you still can react at a more perceptual level. And here, when you see troops marching in, long, mile-long convoys of trucks and tanks, you see on the news and also on social media, bombs exploding and missiles hitting buildings and so on. Then people react, and I think this is part of the reaction in Europe that, oh, okay, maybe this has gone too far. Maybe we have to do something. I, I'm with Alon, I had the same reaction. I'm surprised with the level and and rapidity of the sanctions that Europe has imposed on Russia. And but I think that's only a result of that this was a violent action. And if it was more like the annexing of Crimea and then sort of the more gradual seeking of control, that there would have been basically no European opposition. So he's miscalculated in that. And I think he also miscalculated in regard to um, the Ukrainian resistance and probably miscalculated about um, that thinking of Russians forces as very competent. I don't, that is not my view. And, and, and it was, they had a stalemate in Afghanistan. We did not. So we lost Afghanistan, but that's because we have no policy. We could have easily won in Afghanistan. I would not say the same about the Soviet Russia. So I don't think of, uh, so that's not now, I mean, it was Soviet Russia then. I do not think of Russia as some formidable uh, armed force. It's big and it certainly has nuclear weapons and so on, but it's not that competent. So I've not been surprised that the, the, it's taken longer than supposedly was the, the Russian military expected to be able, how quickly they expected to be able to succeed in the Ukraine. So, and that it's miscalculated and I could see there being some, so it's not the complete collapse of Ukraine, but on the other hand, if there's some negotiated settlement or something like that, then I think the process will be just, it will go back to what it was, which is the gradual collapse and the gradual expansion of Russian power because there is no opposition. And over the long term, you need principled opposition. And there is still no principled opposition. This is a time that Europe and America could, could rethink, just as 9-11 was. Like 9-11 was a watershed moment um, for various reasons. But part of it, it's what it revealed is the complete failure of our actions in the Middle East. And it's an opportunity then to rethink, like, why did we fail? How do we not fail in the future? Do we have a policy? If not, then what should our policy be? So it's an opportunity in that sense, but I don't have much confidence that that kind of thinking will actually happen 
so that we will have a policy when before we have not. I, I want to circle back to something we talked about just a few minutes ago and, and put some of what we're saying in contrast with some of the views out there, because I think it's important to, to sharpen um, the, our position or, or what we're saying in terms of our analysis here. Uh, and uh, by that, I mean the three of us, not us, the United States. So I, we're critical of the U.S. policy. And it, I think one way to put it is U.S. policy made this a worse problem than it needed to be. American policy here was non-existent. It was amoral, lacking direction, lacking focus. And in effect, it, it was a causal factor here. But I don't think the problem here was, as some critics are saying, that America was too aggressive and it was pushing NATO expansion because really what we wanted to do was to antagonize Putin and we were heedless of what the consequences would be. Uh, and we're just too muscular, too tough, whatever metaphor people reach for, too hawkish, or all these metaphors where you're hiding uh, uh, what people aren't willing to talk about, which is uh, what is in our interest and are we pursuing it? I don't think that's true. I think the reality is that we, we really didn't have any direction. And so it, it, we, we take these actions with respect to NATO and membership and we make these commitments to Ukraine that we don't live up to. I don't regard that as being too aggressive. I regard that as lacking any kind of perspective on your long-term interest. We don't have a conception of our interest, let alone pursuing it aggressively. So I, I certainly don't agree with that. And there's an interesting, there's a whole line of argument that's risen in the last few days, criticizing American policy from the direction of it being too aggressive and therefore putting Putin and taking seriously Putin's fears that he's threatened them, that this is an existential. I don't think that's at all true. And I think it gives credence to Putin's position that is undeserved. I don't think Putin is in a, it's just too credulous to me. Uh, and so I think that's a real problem. I think the other kind of narrative that's arisen, it, the people who are putting it forward have become a little more quiet since Putin has actually invaded Ukraine, but this was something you could hear about a week or two ago, or, um, which was, what's your beef with Putin? And you know, I think the epitome of this was Tucker Carlson and there's a monologue of his that talks about, he doesn't call me a racist. Uh, he doesn't tell me what bathrooms to use. I, I forget all the details, but you get the whole drift of it. it he's not uh, part of the left intellectual, uh, what, how, how Carlson characterizes the left or the woke phenomenon. And what's your problem with Putin? Why do we hate him so much? This is all trumped up. He has legitimate concerns. And that's, to me, that is another manifestation of amoralism. And, and other examples of this are when, when major figures on an intellectual political scene, not intellectual, but just political scene, people like the former president, Donald Trump, and his, one of his senior people, Mike Pompeo, telling us, oh, there's a lot to admire in Putin. And I, I think he's a smart, shrewd operator. That to me is just completely morally bankrupt. You can't praise someone who is threatening an invasion, someone who leads a country that's an authoritarian regime veering very rapidly towards dictatorship. You can't praise him, uh, even on technical grounds, which I don't even think are legitimate. I don't think he's this super smart, shrewd tactician or strategist. I think he's, he's at best merely competent and we, we just don't have any sense of what we're trying to do. So to me, those kinds of views are out there. And 
they're by turns amoral and from various perspectives and they they are part of the, their symptoms of lacking any conception of what our interests would consist in or even the need to think about them and the result is that I think they, they pollute the intellectual atmosphere. This is not helpful for anyone in terms of trying to understand what is going on and what could be done here to serve America's interests. And there's two forms. I, I was just going to say that there's two forms of a more amoralism here in regard to the these dictators and dictatorial regimes, and I agree with what Alan was saying that it's even worse when now there's an embrace of dictators. I, that, that Trump did not lose major support after embracing dictators around the world is very troublesome. And it's not, so it, it's the dictators in China, it's Putin and the dictators in Russia, it's the dictators in North Korea, like all of them, he's gone out of his way to praise. Um, so there's a, it's already, you're so evil if you evade their nature. But when you get to the point of praising it, it's like you've, I never thought I would see that in America, but let's not pretend that it was good before that, that um, uh, it's, it's George Bush who pushed, yeah, we're gonna get, um, Ukraine and uh, Georgia into NATO without thinking like, what does that mean? And who we're, this is, we're dealing with Putin and what does it mean? How is a dictator gonna react to this? And does this mean we're committing to defending Ukraine then or not? Or are we just gonna watch as they get attacked? And like, it's a, such a evasion of the actual reality that you're facing. And then after Russia invaded Georgia, if you get Obama, who, I mean, his whole foreign policy is uh, like an abject apology tour. But in regard to Russia, what he says is we're going to reset our relationship with Russia, which basically meant we're going to evade the fact that they invaded Georgia and try to start anew. Um, and like that's massive evasion of the fact that you're dealing with evil. And so like, that's already such, we're at a, such abysmally low point. And then we get to, oh, well, we'll actually embrace dictators. It's um, like to say this is amoralism. It's amoralism all the way down. I think uh, viewers of this show uh, are probably uh, thinking at this point, well, <laughs> things look pretty bad given the way you're presenting it. And the prospects for a more positive reset, to use that metaphor, um, don't look great. And yet, I think what people are starting to see when they're watching the news is, well, it kind of seems like we're at a point where we could have a rethinking of what our relationship should be to Russia that's more positive. And like we said, it was a surprise to see so many countries uh, uh, come together in support, and you, you mentioned that part of that is just because it was a violent incursion and not an invasion and the bombs and people dying as opposed to just these little annexations and soft moves. Um, but also, I mean, just looking in part with 
countries willing to impose sanctions on Russia that don't normally bind together, corporations even starting to sort of back their investments out of Russia, or in some cases, not so often, but just completely divest from relations to Russia. Um, what can we do to encourage or set the right tone for, for the right principles? for resetting to some extent, what should America's relationship be vis-a-vis -vis Russia, vis-a-vis -vis NATO, um, from a more moral perspective? I mean, what would you tell business leaders, for example? What would you tell people in a position, like we're not making policy here, um, but what would you wanna try to tell them to do or encourage them to think about? Because we I seem see. to be in a moment where people are willing to rethink and yeah. yet, what you're saying, it looks like, yeah, well, I mean, we, we don't have a philosophy. We don't have an ideology. We're sort of running around a country with no map. And it, then the prospects look really bleak. And yet, what can, we, what can we do? Well, two things that would at least start moving towards a longer term, more principled and more moral viewpoint would be. So on the issue of sanctions, in some of the discussion, people have brought up, so some of the discussion of what's happening in Ukraine and the imposition of these sanctions is, is how long will they last? So what is the resolve and the commitment here? And in, in some of the discussions, some people have brought up, look at the commitment that was involved in regard to South Africa. And there people get like, this is an evil regime, apartheid is evil, and you have to meet evil with a certain resolve and you have to be willing to acknowledge it and act accordingly. Will that be sustained in regard to Russia and Putin and more broadly in regard to um, if you think uh, South Africa was evil for apartheid and it was evil for apartheid, so is Russia, so is China, so is now North Korea, so is Saudi Arabia. And are you willing to think about that and think um, what should that entail in terms of our actions and policies long-term, not was there sanctions for the next two weeks and uh, Russian airplanes can't fly through our airspace and so on, but a month later when there's some kind of ceasefire or something, all that will resume. So that's one in terms of, are you willing to face, and this is at the citizens level, are you willing to face the fact that you're dealing with evil regimes and to think of what that requires of, our, of us long-term? Um, and something like thinking about what the reaction and evaluation towards South Africa was and the pressure that was put on them. That's one I would put, like if, if something like that happens, I think we're moving in a better direction. And the other is in regard to energy policy. So Germany, for instance, canceled the pipeline that, uh, that's going to be supplying from Russia into, into Western Europe. Um, the Europe's energy policy is bad and like really bad in the sense that there's a, it, and it's again, I think it's a moral pretense. It's we're going to get off fossil fuels. We're also going to get off nuclear for no reason other than environmentalist scaremongering in regard to both of these. So we're gonna get off fossil fuels, we're gonna get off nuclear, and even some 
a place like France that has a lot of nuclear power in part for strategic reasons is fate, well, not reducing that when you look at the, at the statistics of, of how much power and electricity they get from nuclear. Um, and it's, it, we're gonna get so-called renewable energy, which is a misnomer, but it, so it's, it's doing that while simultaneously knowing that this will mean disempowering Europe. So of course we need energy from um, Russia and we need fossil fuels because that's the only thing that will actually power us, but we're gonna pretend we're off of it and it's coming from some, yeah, it's coming from dirty Russia that has still fossil fuel industry and so on. And so it's a massive pretense. And will there be a facing of this issue that our energy policy is a pretense and a farce and makes us strategically vulnerable? Um, and, and there's a real tie to what, how environmentalism of, of the kind of damage that it does that you don't have power across the world. It's all kinds of problems in regard to poverty, but there's also security problems that it, it's like, and this previously before um, America achieved, I mean, unleashed its energy industry more. It was this in regard to the Middle East, like we're dependent on these tyrannies in Saudi Arabia. And, so, and that is a strategic issue and there actually is no reason if you liberated fossil fuels and nuclear energy, there's no reason to be dependent on these kinds of tyrannies. And will people face that issue and be willing to look at it? And this is not like a whole rethinking of all the strategy, but it's two major things. Will people be willing to look or will they turn their eyes away in a few months? Yeah, and watching the subsequent <laughs> development uh, of how Europe reacts, how long do this, like you, as you said, how long do the sanctions last? We're divesting from Russian oil for a week let, to see how, is there really any? So these are some of the parameters to watch. Like, are they really committed to this? Do they really understand that we need to break with them? Uh, or is this sort of a temporary measure to show our, you know, hashtag support Ukraine or something? Um, and then I mean, on the, oh yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, if you want a further step that would be a positive sign, it would be that in a, to, taking those two for granted and moving in that direction, I think a further step, which would be really evidence of rethinking, which is what I think would be the uh, minimum goal here, is for more places, to more countries, more regimes, more organizations, to to look at Russia and actually say, not just Putin was wrong to invade Ukraine, which he is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an evil action, but to say, no, we can't deal with Putin. He doesn't belong in this forum. He shouldn't be part of this organization. We don't want Russia, really shun them. So when you talk about what happened with South Africa, it's, it's useful to see that as a model for the reason you mentioned, Ankar, and to think of it as, South Africa was turned into a pariah. There were very few countries that were willing to deal with it. And those countries were deemed to be, had their hands dirty, they had blood on their hands in effect. So it was really, it's a, still, it's a stain that they still carry that they dealt with South Africa during the time of apartheid and during the time of an attempt to isolate, isolate and shun 
South Africa. If you can get to the point where it's a black mark against you if you're trading with Russia and that people look at you and say, why are you doing that? Don't you understand what's going on there? Don't you, haven't you seen what happened in Ukraine? Haven't you seen what happened in, in Russia to opposition leaders, to people in the streets who want to protest and speak their mind? Haven't you seen what happens to all sorts of critics of Putin? Have you seen the kind of violence that the regime unleashes against anyone who dares challenge them? All of that means that people are moving towards some recognition that when you're dealing with an evil regime, you have to take it seriously. You have to recognize that being ignoring it and being complicit with it makes you an accessory to their crimes. And then therefore you should shun them you should, and do more if you can. But the, so none of this means going to war with Russia. I think there's a lot that could be done. It's, uh, certainly none of what we're saying here means we should, anyone should, uh, other than Ukraine should react with military force. But the, the power of moral suasion, the power of, of shunning and ostracizing, it's immense. And it's nowhere near uh, exhausted at this point, even with all the things that are so remarkable that we touched on earlier with the European, even Switzerland, of all places, Switzerland, which is famous as a byword for neutrality and, a, and a, a known place where you can stash ill-gotten billions, Switzerland has taken a step towards freezing assets of, of Russian uh, figures. So when you have that, you have an opening, and this is what it would look like. Like We don't want our hands covered in, in, in the blood that Putin is spilling anywhere, whether it's within Russia or outside of it. That, to me, would be a remarkable, that would be a milestone on the road to a better policy. And it, so this won't happen, but I was happy to see at least there was some discussion of this. But if you're asking at a little more principal level what we could do to start taking steps in the right direction, it would be to dissolve the UN. And at least there's been some discussion of maybe Russia should be booted off the security, the permanent security council. Um, but this is if the UN should have been abolished long ago, but if this doesn't lead you to abolish the UN, what could happen that would lead you to abolish the UN? And you could abolish it and set up some kind of organization that is, there, there's not many free countries in the world today, but semi-free countries and have some clear membership um, criteria and tell other places like Russia, like if you met these, um, you might be able to join, but you would get rid of Russia and you would get rid of China. And you would say like, it, no, it's a farce to have an organization that it's we're United Nations when you've got one invading another. Um, and it, it, it lends so much prestige and credibility to a Russia, to a China, that you're, yeah, like you're one of the leading voices in this organization that is supposedly about peace. Um, and like, how can you give a greater sanction to Putin or to uh, the dictators in China to say that, that, yeah, this is how we regard you. So you could do that and but we're so far from that, that this, I mean, this is what is depressing. Like if you just, I mean, we had the Olympics in Beijing 
um, a few weeks ago. And the, the idea that it's the, the, you can regard China, it's qua government as a legitimate place is, I mean, it's a farce on the world stage. And what a real, like to dissolve the UN and to take these kinds of steps, what you would try to be communicating and would be regularly communicating is we don't hate the Russian people. We don't hate the Chinese. We hate your government. And we in part hate them because they oppress you. And we would rather be that you were free and we could trade with you and so on. And so part of what, like to have a foreign policy would be you're trying to drive a wedge between these governments and the people who are subject to them. We do nothing like that. And um, so if, if you're asking like, what were positive steps that you could take now, it, it, it is you could do that and you could reverse our decades long appeasement and whitewashing of these places and, and, and say like, that's what we're dissolving the UN because that's what it has done. And it's time to change course and try something new. And the UN didn't always exist. It doesn't always have to exist. Um, and that, like, if that happened, I would be, um, okay, maybe there is some real rethinking. But that would also be very surprising. Yeah, unfortunately. I think you'd agree. Yeah, yeah, I mean, because this is part of, I mean, it's part cause, part symptom uh, of how anti-intellectual, unphilosophical uh, our approaches uh, that you could try to think that you could have a better policy toward uh, oppressive regimes and at the same time live with the contradiction of having Russia and China or now <laughs> Venezuela <laughs> on the Security Council and think of yourself as having any moral credibility at all. Um, how, how could you live with that contradiction? It's partly, it's, it's long, so long as you're giving countries like Russia and China a seat at the table and veto power and so on. I mean, how can you expect anyone to take you seriously? Uh, it shows you have no moral perspective whatsoever. Uh, and I think it's a very sad fact uh, with regard to America. But if we put this toward you, if we think about this toward Ukraine, we're talking about more generally, what can we do? What positive steps can we do to work for uh, a, better, a better perspective on these things? What can we do to help? So, I mean, I take it as it is in our interest to see um, Ukraine not fall to the Soviet Union. Uh, and it would be better if he did not succeed, if Putin did not succeed and had to go back uh, to Russia and left Ukraine uh, standing in effect. Um, what can we do uh, with regard to Ukraine? I mean, from the perspective of a better attitude toward Ukraine right now, I mean, it's in a war, this is what, day seven. Um, and I mean, I obviously, I think we would all agree that we're not sending boots on the ground for sure. Um, but in terms of trading munitions, rockets, any other sort of, sorts of form of aid, any kind of intellectual moral support, I think would be helpful. But what would you say about that? Because I think the moral support can go a long way, but I mean, our credibility is pretty shot in that regard, particularly toward Ukraine and other countries. Yeah, I mean, I was happy to see, I don't think it does anything at a, at a concrete level, but it's the moral issue of, Play bars in the U.S. pouring out their Russian vodka, um, 
and say and saying we're going to buy Ukrainian vodka. That yeah, I so I agree with that that kind of moral support that. Ukraine is not the greatest place. It's not a place devoid of corruption and so on. So I don't want to pretend that it, it's like Denmark, but in comparison to Russia, it is the better place. It's the freer place. There's more reason to think they're interested in, in moving towards freedom. So that, yeah, you do not, in, in a fight between Ukraine and Russia, you should be on Ukraine's side. Um, and there's moral support for that moral condemnation of the people either um, sitting on the fence or embracing Putin. And uh, Alon, you brought up things like Tucker Carlson, but there's just at the level of um, um, athletes and celebrities. So there's been uh, um, Russian sports figures who basically said, yeah, I hope the fighting ends. I don't like violence, but they're on the side of Putin, basically. Ovechkin here is uh, a star here on the Washington hockey team. Um, it, 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 it's depressing to watch the press conference and people should call him out for that. And there would be better athletes to say that, um, uh, yeah, Putin's a killer and he doesn't speak for me. So, so that kind of moral support, but the, issue of arming Ukraine, like this is also, I think, part of the failure of the West and the fact that we have no foreign policy, at least if you say they're going to be, become members of NATO and we're not going to defend them if they're attacked, but like if they join NATO, then we will, but not in the long period where we say they're going to join NATO, but they're not part of NATO, at least give them arms and allow them to arm themselves so that they could defend. And it's, it's late, better than never, maybe in this case, that so someone like Germany is starting to say, yeah, yeah, we will send arms to the Ukraine. So that should have happened, um, I mean, certainly should have happened in the late uh, 2021, when it's clear there's already plans of Russia that an attack might happen. It should have happened before that, but, and the individual citizen here in, in, in the US and in, in the free countries in Europe, you could really push your representatives to whatever you can do to help Ukraine arm itself and defend itself. And that it's arms, but it's also that like I've been, it's been good to see some of the tech companies helping in regard to Ukraine's effort, both about cyber attacks, um, Elon Musk saying, we're gonna help you get internet access. So your lines of communication are not cut off. All of that, um, and you as an individual citizen can push your representatives that, yeah, at least help them defend themselves. And given the fact that there's a real case to made that we've sold them out, we have a moral obligation to do that. One other element of this, so we've talked a bit about how European countries and, and more generally other countries around the world have taken remarkable steps with imposing sanctions of various kinds so far. And I believe on Monday when the, the stock exchange opened in uh, Moscow, it was really down and the ruble, the, the currency in Russia has really suffered as a result of this. But I don't think we've come close to what could be done 
on that front in terms of diplomatically. So there are American, there are diplomats from Russia in America that were expelled just the other day. Why were they expelled? Because we, we decided that they were spies, as if we don't know that a lot of diplomats at embassies are spies. So this was a ridiculous way of expelling, but I don't think they completely shut the embassy. Why do we, why do we keep diplomatic relations with Russia? Why does any country do that? This is a, an egregious violation of uh, sovereignty of a country, which I agree, I wouldn't want to live in Ukraine, but if you gave me the choice, Russia versus Ukraine, I would much prefer Ukraine. As, and as you said, I think there, there's enough people in Ukraine that want a better life, that want to move towards Western countries. There should be no country now that, it, if you take seriously the idea that we wouldn't want Putin invading us, well, if that's true and if you recognize that that's wrong, why do you have any kind of diplomatic relations with Russia? Close the door, kick them out. And I think, and then on top of that, there's so many more financial penalties and sanctions that you can impose that I don't think we've even come close to. So one of the things that was going back and forth the last few days is there's a, a network called SWIFT, which is a, a, a way of transmitting financial transactions that is global and various countries are part of that. And there was talk of kicking Russia out or limiting its access and, and curbing that. And some of that has happened. But why not more? And, and why continue trade? And I think the, the other one that I, I was really impressed with, and I hope it goes through, is that Norway has a sovereign uh, investment fund. I'm not, I forget what it's called, but they have a lot of money. And they're, they're just, they said, we're going to divest from Russia. And I think it's exactly what the kind of thing you need to, and permanently, not until the fighting's over, but permanently in the same way that, to go back to the example of South Africa during apartheid, divestment was a major part of that campaign. We're not doing any business with you. And this is it. This is, we're not going to invest. You're going to suffer. And I think I've read the credible accounts that people have overestimated the strength of the Russian economy. So there's talk that for a long time, Russia was building up enough reserves and so forth so that it could withstand sanctions, presumably because there were plans to do something like this. Nevertheless, the economy in Russia is much smaller than many European countries. I think it's smaller than Germany, smaller than France. So I don't think it would take a lot to really cripple Russia to the point where it, would, it might make Putin stop. It might cause real harm to his regime and maybe unseat it. That could be a, maybe that's too fantastic to hope for. But you could do so much more than we already have, as, as remarkable as it is. And I would like to see that happen. So, and I think that's anyone in every country that has some diplomatic relations with Russia could advocate that that stop. Uh, why would you want killers on your soil? Why would you want to be, uh, grant them that level of, of credence and, and respectability that they deserve to have representation? There is no argument for that. And the, and the prospects for, for Russia itself are unclear in the sense that just how much do people in Russia want a different kind of regime as opposed to just not Putin, maybe somebody else. <laughs> uh, it's how much do they want it? Why and what reasons do they have for wanting something different? What would they want to replace it? I mean, that's one kind of question. I don't have any kind of the answer to that. But that's not, we don't have to wait around for that to happen for us to take the right steps to disconnect from Russia to, and, and, to, and to make a moral statement about the evil nature of the regime. And I think I think the 
some kind of a, a moral confidence, I think, uh, on the part of better countries is necessary. I think just as a statement, it's like, we, this is actually what we think. We think this is evil, not just this little geopolitical maneuvering and we'll make some sanctions and you know, appease so on, uh, appease Putin and so on. Um, but this is how we regard it more like, and I think people should be driving more those kinds of parallels with South Africa while there's momentum. Because once this goes away, there'll be no momentum anymore. Uh, and then people will just go back to their phones and go back to life and it just won't, they won't feel it as, as, as viscerally as they do now. Yeah, and this is why the, I mean, one of the reasons the energy issue is so important that um, I think part of the reason I've been surprised by the European reaction and the level of sanctions and so is that they're scared to death that Russia will, um, in effect, turn off the energy. And that, yeah, you've put yourself into that predicament that now makes it difficult. And this is why it, like, you need a long-term perspective that if it, we're going to treat it, as Alan put it, as a pariah, that means something. And that means like we have to get energy from other places. And that means we have to develop our own energy and construct trade relationships and pipelines. So we get it from elsewhere. So, and that takes like, that is part of what takes long-term thinking, a principled perspective that can only give you the commitment and resolve to do that over years. Um, and it, so that it, it's um, the, the disintegrated nature of European policy is they, they put themselves into this predicament, but longer term, the only way out is this kind of focus. And I would say at, at um, part of the whole amoralism is that there's a real asymmetry that someone like Putin can give an hour long speech about like, this is how I think about it. This is what all the grievances are. This is, I want Russia back to its 19th century glory. And I don't really recognize Ukraine. So, and you don't, can't get anything equivalent in a positive way from our side. And even like he'll say, well, I, I want a different regime in Ukraine. Why can't our um, leaders say Putin should step down? You've been in power for 20 plus years. You're a dictator. There's better representatives in Russia. You should step down. You're like your whole thing is illegitimate. Um, and that's part of what you brought up, Aaron, having some moral backbone. That would be having some moral backbone. Like you're a thug and a dictator, you should step down. And it would be it might redeem you a little, little bit if you step down. Um, and but there's nothing like that from our side. Nothing. So it looks like we are at time. We've got some questions that were sent in, but uh, for people who want to follow up on the discussion, and uh, we're we're going to be going to Clubhouse right after this. Uh, maybe not all of us, but we're going to be going to Clubhouse uh, so you can join us to discuss uh, these issues to um, at, at more length on uh, the Ayn Rand Club. That's the name of the club on Clubhouse. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, as usual, uh, please subscribe to our channel. 
on YouTube, uh, click the bell to get notifications when we go live or post new recordings. If you're watching the recording, uh, please like, comment on, or share the episode to attract new viewers. Uh, and please consider doing the same if you're watching on Facebook. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, um, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes, send them to, uh, send, send them to us at newideal at einrand.org. We do read all the emails and we reply to many of them. Uh, so uh, Alan and Ankar, thanks a lot for joining me today. I think this has been a really interesting episode. Uh, and uh, I think this is, these are things that need to be said. So, thanks everyone. And for those of you who are joining, I'll see you at Clubhouse. See you next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.